This podcast is available in video at fpcgolfport.org and fpcgolfport on YouTube. You know, just over 15 years ago, there was a man whose family moved to a small house on the eastern side of New Orleans. Now, after they moved in, the neighbors, very nice neighbors, southern hospitality and all, they came over and they brought a gift. They brought a housewarming gift. Now, as the man looked... As the father of this household looked at the gift, he recognized what it was, even though it was wrapped. When it was handed to him, he knew what he was holding. He was holding an axe. The neighbor, oddly enough, had come over with an axe as his housewarming present. Now, he didn't know what to make of it. The man who received it thought that was odd. He started to wonder about what neighborhood he'd settled down in. As I look around the room this morning, I know that some of you, some of y'all know what the axe was for. So we know the purpose of this gift. You see, a few months after this family moved to New Orleans, as Faye would have it, Hurricane Katrina hit. Hurricane Katrina hit about 15 years ago this very weekend. And as this man watched, as he saw in the news of the levees had broken, as this man watched the waters come down the street, as this man watched the waters fill his living room, and then began to creep up the stairs, he took his family up into the attic, and there on a shelf he saw, guess what? He saw the axe, and then, and then he knew just what to do with it. His neighbor had told him there would be days like these, and this man with the waters rising up his staircase took the axe and just blew a hole in his roof, and he and his family climbed up to safety. See, here on the Gulf Coast, it's not a matter of if the storms are going to come. It's not a matter of if you'll ever see a hurricane across your time here. Storms have come. They will come again. Where we live, it's not a matter of if the storms will come. It's a matter of how prepared we are when they do. When they do. Whether it's an axe in the attic or some other form of preparation, these things can make the difference between life and death. When the storm comes hits when the storm comes. Now, most of you, again, are aware, as Roddy shared a little bit earlier, this weekend commemorates the 15th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. Those who live in our area know that it wasn't just New Orleans that was devastated. The news and the media like to pretend that it was. If you lived on the West Coast, you thought only New Orleans got hit with the storm. We know better. We know it not only hit Louisiana, it also hit our part of Mississippi. It hit Gulfport. It destroyed much of our town, destroyed homes of people we love. It destroyed our whole previous church building. Our whole previous facility. Some of you lived through that. Some of you saw that with your own eyes. Some of you worshipped in church one week and then it wasn't there. At least the building wasn't there the following. Some of you looked in the former building. Some of you saw how it was gutted. How the John Knox pulpit had fallen. How there was a gator that was found swimming around the foyer. I asked earlier, I asked someone, whatever happened to the gator? And John Kitch yelled out, they shot him. <laughs> Gator didn't fare too well. And yet, what a calamity. What a calamity. A storm comes one week, there's people worshiping, they're gathering. The next week, there is no more building. There's a gator swimming around Fellowship Hall. Storms can come. You won't always see them coming. You won't always know that they're on the horizon. And this particular storm, Hurricane Katrina, you cannot, you cannot overstate the calamity that it brought both to our community, to our congregation, uh, to loved ones, even in the church body at that time, who lost everything. Now, those of you who were present, 
in our church or our congregation at that time and in the months that followed know this, that as terrible as the storm was and as much damage as it did, that yet God was still present in the midst of it. In the months that followed, in the years that followed, God provided. God sent a host of volunteers, people from across the country to come and assist. God sent people to come alongside and offer hugs and old hands and and help to rebuild. God sent finances to the community, to our congregation. God sent a man. God sent a pastor we know as Guy Richard, the right man at the right time. God sent, God provided. God blessed this church in ways that we're still feeling, even as we just look around the room this morning. Look what God has done in the midst of trying circumstances, in the midst of the storm. There's much we could talk about along these lines. If we were to open the mic and have folks come forward and share their stories, there's a lot of stories. There's more stories than we have time to hear them. But that said, for this morning, although our inclination on the anniversary of something is to look back at it, this morning we're spending our time in Scripture, and this morning we're looking ahead, not to the storm that has passed, but to the storm that's still out there, to the storm on the horizon. Without further ado, let's... Consider that storm. So look at verse 24 of today's passage. Verse 24 says this. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. All right. As we said earlier this morning, today's message, today's text comes at the very end of the most famous sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And at this point in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, he's been preaching for three chapters, Matthew 5 through 7, in order to explain things about the kingdom of God, things that were countercultural, things that upset the apple cart, so to speak, of the people who heard it. And he was telling people how you're supposed to live within that kingdom, within the kingdom of God. By the time we get to today's text in chapter 7, Jesus, he's bringing things to a crescendo. He was a good preacher. He was bringing things to a crescendo. After three chapters of fervent preaching in chapter 7, he closes out his sermon. He closes out his sermon with power and by saying something that the people did not, did not expect. Specifically, in the last several paragraphs, including today's text and preceding it, in the last several paragraphs of Matthew 7, Jesus, he's looking in the eye. He's looking people out on the hillside, out on the mount, He's looking at folks gathered around him. He's assessing their spiritual condition as he does so. And he is going to shatter false, fake assurance that so many of the people before him were trusting in. He's going to shatter it. Now how? Well, as Jesus stared out at those who were gathered around him on the mountainside, he flat out told them this. He said, many, many are trusting and the wrong thing. And that misplaced trust is going to cost you when the storm comes. When the storm comes. Now specifically, I want you to notice this. Specifically, in the passage right before today's reading, in verse 23, as opposed to verse 24 where we started today, specifically in the verses leading right up to what we're looking at this morning, Jesus said the hardest thing that he would ever say in all of his ministry, the strongest statement, the strongest rebuke, the strongest challenge to the religiosity of his day. In Matthew 7... He says this, verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who comes to me, assumes or pretends or claims to know me, 
claims to have the intimate relationship that's indicated by the repetition of Lord, Lord, not everyone who does that shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But, but, he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we not done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, depart from me. I never knew you. Depart from me. I never knew you. You who practice lawlessness. Have you ever heard of the term false assurance? I am sure that many of you have. And you know that such a thing is dangerous. You know, if there's a fire, fire breaks out in your house. You go running over, you go to the baseboard, and there's a fire extinguisher. And you look at it, you know, it's dated 1958, and it hasn't been used or checked in all those years since. In the moment of calamity, as the fire is raging, as the heat is coming, you grab that fire extinguisher, you pull the plug, you pull the trigger, what happens? Well, not much. Not much. All those years, you trusted this thing when you needed it that would work. All those years, you had some confidence that, hey, if a fire ever breaks out, we're okay. Okay, after all, I've got the fire extinguisher. And yet, and yet, that assurance and a faulty extinguisher would be a faulty assurance. It would not work out. False assurance leads people to think that they're safe when they aren't. False assurance leads people to think that everything's going to be okay when it isn't. False assurance leads people to think that, say, they've built a fine home. Maybe it's a real home. Maybe it's just a spiritual home. But they built a home. They built the walls. And they got the facade up. And it looks good. It's got the trellis on the side. It's got the chimney up above. They've got this fine home. It's got beams and walls and the like. And they think that this is a good home. And that it's in great shape. Even though its foundation sits upon the sand. They look at it and they say, all is well. The skies are blue. Come see my house. The house might look good, it might even look strong. But if it's built on a weak, sandy foundation, then guess what? How it looks is irrelevant because it won't last when the storm hits. Whether it's a house of stone, whether it's a spiritual house, so many of us are building something. The question is, what ingredients are we using? And also, what foundation does it rest upon? And the funny thing is that when the skies are blue, whether in real life or spiritually speaking, when things are going all right, when it's hunky-dory outside, when life isn't challenging us, then guess what? The house that looks good still looks good. Its facade is shiny and it sparkles and it looks great. And yet, and yet, when the storm comes, the house is going down. If it's not built of solid foundation. As a homeowner, as a Christian, blue skies can lull us into a false sense of security. But the wind will come. The rain will fall. And that is the test. And the thing is, just as a house built on sand won't stand when the rains come, so the spiritual house cannot stand. If its foundation isn't solid, it doesn't matter how good it looks from the outside. It doesn't matter. The Pharisees looked good. Remember that. The Pharisees looked like they had this religion thing licked. They looked like the most religious people around. They had the tall pointy hats. They had the vestments. They had little pomegranates. They had the whole look. They looked the part. They looked the part. 
If anyone was religious, they'd say, that guy, Pharisee Jones over here, he's the one. And yet, for all the looks and the facade and the veneer, if their foundation was weak, was based on their works, based on their efforts, if it was based on something shallow, if it wasn't based on the personal work of Jesus Christ, then it wouldn't last when the storms came through. Even the shiniest veneer, even the best paint job on a house won't last a moment. A Cat 5 hurricane comes through town. In a sense, this is what Jesus is stirring up his audience on the mountain to let them know. He's stirring them up. That's exactly his point when he says, he looks people in the eye and he says, know this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. He was shaking them of their false assurance. You know, to put it bluntly, some professing believers are not actual believers. They have the facade of Christian faith, but not the foundation of faith. And a storm will bear that out. All right, let's look at that storm now as we consider verse 25. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. You know, one of the reasons that the Sermon on the Mount is so effective was because Jesus taught using analogies and metaphors and similes and the like. He made things relatable. He took dense theology, dense doctrine, and he used object lessons in order to explain it. That's one of the reasons his preaching was so good. For example, in the case of this morning's reading, Jesus is using a contrast between rock and sand to highlight the importance of one's spiritual foundation when the storm comes, when the storm comes calling. Now, if you were to look further back in Matthew 7, you'd see this is not the first time where he compares two things. He does it throughout chapter 7. This just happens to be the last one. But throughout Matthew 7, you see he's making other dualistic comparisons. For example, just a few verses earlier, he had talked about two doors. Remember, Jesus was talking about the kingdom of heaven. And he says, all right, there's a broad door, a wide door, leads to death. There's a narrow door, a second door, a better door that leads to life. And he says, many who think they're in great shape are heading in the wrong door. And few, comparatively few, are entering through the narrow door. And the way that you know them is that they're the ones who are walking in the narrow way, whose trajectory is carrying them through the narrow door, who are walking accordingly. In any case, Jesus shows these dual analogies. He talks about two doors, one wide, one narrow. He talked about two kinds of fruit. Remember, one good, one bad. Good figs and bad figs. And now he's talking about two houses, one that will stand, one that will be destroyed. And the purpose of these dual analogies, the purpose of these dual analogies was to prompt his listeners to think. Sometimes we're not all farmers, so the fig thing doesn't work much for us. Some of us are contractors and the like. He uses different analogies, different object lessons in order to reach his audience. And he repeats his main point several times in order that folks might get it. If they didn't understand it over here, maybe they'd understand it over here. So he's trying to prompt his listeners to think and to be introspective, to ask themselves what path are they on. As you sit in the pews this morning, what path are you on? Walking in a broad path in a broad way or walking in a narrow path or a narrow way? Is your fruit good? Is your fruit bad? Is your foundation rock? Is your foundation sand? The whole point of this, whether he's talking to people on the mountain or he's talking to you and I this morning, is to get us to be introspective and assess the nature of our own work and say, here is where I stand. 
or here is where I'm liable to fall and to be introspective. Now, how were people supposed to know if they were in good shape? How can you and I know if we're in good shape? Well, by the time we get to verses 24 and 25 of today's reading, Jesus explained it this way. He says, the people who are in good shape, the people whose houses really are built, really are built on the rock, he says, these are the people who have done what God has told them to do. Remember, he said, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I liken to a wise man who has built his house on the rock. See, a lot of people have professions. That's not the hard part. Lots of people profess. The hard part is patterning. Patterning your choices, your lifestyle after that profession. On the day of judgment, many are going to bring a profession to Jesus. That's what he just said in verse 21. Many are going to come to him with a profession. Many of them are going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this? Didn't I do that? And yet they'll hear the hardest words you could possibly hear. Depart from me. It's one thing if you hear that from the cashier at Walmart. It's another thing if you hear that from the lips of your maker. And yet, that is what he'll say. There's many who have a profession, and yet God will stop them on the tracks on the day and remind them that their profession and their choices didn't match up. Now, to be clear here, to be clear here, we are not saved by our works. To be abundantly clear, we are not saved by our works. We're not saved because we earn our way into heaven. We're not saved because we do enough things that tip the balance in our favor. Absolutely not. Not the way it works. And yet, here's the thing. If we have been saved, if we are saved, then we will bear good fruit. Our works demonstrate, testify to the legitimacy of our faith. And that's one of the ways that you can be introspective and ask yourself, what condition am I in? How am I leading my family? Are they walking the walk they're called to walk? Am I leading them as I'm called to lead? How much time am I spending in the Word? How much time am I spending in prayer? What are my profession and my choices? What relationship do these two things have? And for some folks, not much. And those that are in, the ones in danger when the storm hits. Let's look at verse 26. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. You know, if you ever travel to Israel, if you ever go to Israel, and you'll notice this, that northern Israel, it's lush, it's beautiful, it's green, there's mountains, you've got Mount Hermon towards the top, it's wonderful. It is the land of milk and honey, as we see in the Old Testament scriptures. Northern Israel is wonderful. Southern Israel, what we call Judah, towards the south, not so much. It is stark. Down towards the south, things are unpleasant, they're dry, it's a very barren area. And in this barren area, you'll see these things that are called wadi, W-A-D-I, wadi. And what they are is dry creek beds. If you ever visit the American Southwest, go to Arizona, it doesn't get a lot of rain, but you'll notice that there's a lot of dry creek beds. And you'll notice that there's signs up. And the signs say, be careful. Well, in Israel, there's all manner of these wadi, these dry creek beds, and ordinarily, these creek beds are empty. Ordinarily, if you go and you take a trip down there, if you go down to the Dead Sea and the like, and you go throughout that region, if you go look to see where the Dead Sea scrolls are and so forth, you'll notice that everything's pretty dry, everything's pretty barren, and these wadi are completely empty. But from time to time, heavy storms do come. They bring heavy rain to this region. The rain really doesn't have anywhere to go. 
So what happens is that this water goes from the high points down to the low points. And when it reaches the low points, it reaches them as a raging torrent. Guess what would happen if you were to go and build a house right in the middle of one? Well, it would not end well for you. Maybe you'd get a week, a month, six months. Maybe you'd get a good period of time. Maybe the skies would be blue and you'd say, how wise I am. Look at the deal I got in this land. I can't believe no one else wants this. Well, there's a reason they don't want it. Because they know what happens if you build your house in the sand of the water. They know what will happen. The rain will come, the storm will come, and it will blow it. It will blow it away. And it doesn't matter how good it looks. It doesn't matter the veneer. It doesn't even matter the timbers and such that are used. If it's built on a bad foundation, it's coming down. When Jesus shared this analogy, when he shared this story with his listeners, they knew what he was talking about. They didn't have to be contractors to get this. They understood what he was saying. He was saying something that they already understood in order to make a greater theological point that they didn't. He was telling them that they were like the house. Some of them were built on a good foundation, but others were not. And they were sitting before him in danger and didn't even know it. And Jesus, through spiritual eyes, could look ahead and know that the storm was on the horizon. A storm was coming, and they were in danger. With that danger in mind, let's look at verse 27. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it fell. And great, great was its fall. You know, there was a, there was a preacher once. There was a preacher who told his congregation that if they uh, would sow their seed... If they would give to his ministry, if they would tip their hats to King Jesus, that God would give them their best life now. He'd give them what they needed. And as a result of getting what they needed, they would also, they'd also get what they want. And they would live a life apart from hardship, apart from cancer, apart from real sickness, apart from poverty. We know this is the prosperity gospel, and it was a promise given to this preacher's congregation that if only they would do what he told them to do, if only they were faithful and giving and pledging and the like, then everything would go fine, that God would smile upon them, that their lives would be smooth, that they wouldn't taste some of the pain that is outside these doors. This is what was preached. This man was preaching the gospel of the insulated bubble around those who believe in it, and that those who trusted in what he was saying that life storms would just magically pass them by. Much as the, the Passover, the angel of death passed over the land, he says there's certain things you can do. Buy your prayer cloth from me, he said, things like that. And if you do this, you'll be fine. Life storms will pass the believer by. But that's not true, is it? Some in this room have been believers for a long time. And some of those same individuals have seen more than their share of life storms. Apostle Paul certainly had. Beaten, shipwrecked, imprisoned. He had seen life storms, and I trust that you have too. See, today's passage doesn't pretend that just because you're a believer, you won't face stormy weather. In fact, we know the opposite to be true. So as you look at today's text, here's the interesting thing. The houses, there's two houses, two different foundations, one of sand and one of rock. Two houses, two foundations, and yet the same storms hit them both. That's what they have in common. One house wasn't spared from the storms. They both faced the storms. 
They both face the things that are outside these doors that can hurt us, that can harm us, that can lay scars, both real and spiritual, on our back. They both face these storms. The difference? When the storm passed, one of the houses stood. And it was the house that was founded on the rock. Founded on the rock of faith and the personal work of Jesus Christ. You know, you may have faced cancer in times past. You may face it in the future. You may face death of a loved one. You may face it in the future. You may face poverty or sickness. All manner of things in the past. You may yet face it in the future. Some, in the course of my pastoral ministry, and there was courses serving as a chaplain, especially early on in my ministry, some face those things apart from the framework of faith. And because of that, when the storm hits, they've got nowhere to stand, nowhere to go. And they collapse in on themselves like a dying star. And it's the most painful thing in the world as a pastor to see that and see people face the hardships that this world can throw at them apart from any faith that there are better days ahead and that there's one who cares above. Some face those storms and they don't have a foundation. And man alive, their life just crumbles. For the rest of us, it's still hard. Make no mistake. You lose someone you care about. You face a diagnosis you don't want. It's still hard, but there's a difference that enables you to stand and survive and to look ahead to the future. There's a difference. You're upheld by a holy God and His holy word. You're upheld by the shed blood of Jesus Christ on Calvary. You're upheld by the fellowship of the saints and believers. You're upheld by all sorts of things that the unbeliever does not have. And I tell you, it makes a difference. Because I've seen the house of sand. And I've seen the house built on a rock. I've watched the storms hit both. And it makes a difference what your house, what our houses are founded upon. In any case, as we look at today's text, a case could be made that today's passage is meant to remind us of that. A case could be made that today's passage is meant to remind us to take action now, to ground ourselves in our faith, to be in the Word, to spend our time in church or in fellowship, to spend our time doing devotions, to do these things. A case can be made that this text is warning us, telling us to be better prepared for when life storms whirl around us. And practically speaking, there are some choices that we can and should make to respond. Parents, those who are parents in this room, parents, you and I need, we need to be men and women of the Word. We need to be men and women of the Word. And we need to set biblical examples for our kids. We, we do. Because we know what's out there, even if they don't. We need to be men and women of the Word. Children, teenagers, I think we've got a few in the room. Young folks, you need to grab hold of the faith. You need to make it your own. You need not to continue to live out your faith vicariously through your parents. You need a foundation under your own feet. Church leaders, church leaders, you need to pattern everything you do after scripture you pattern every action and every course the church takes after what we find in God's holy word because pragmatism which so many churches lean upon it's a house of cards it will blow over when the storm comes we need all of us in every capacity we serve and every capacity God has made us we need to be intentional about these things that means making a decision this week to do something differently than maybe we've done in days past we all need to be increasingly grounded in our faith. We need to have the spiritual equivalent of the axe in the attic. Because the storms will come and we need to be prepared. With that said, I think 
Jesus had a bigger storm than even all those things combined in view. A storm that dwarfs all others. A Category 1 hurricane is nothing compared to a Category 5. Well, there is a Category 100,000. Pick whatever number. There is a category much higher than we can even name, bearing down on this whole globe in the form of God's wrath against man's sin. Listen to how God describes this in Ezekiel 13. We'll close with these thoughts. Listen to how God describes his wrath against sin as a storm that is out on the horizon of all mankind. Ezekiel 13. I will cause a stormy wind to break forth in my fury, and there shall be a flooding rain of my anger and great hailstones and fury to consume it. Nahum chapter 1 verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds of the dust beneath his feet. Jeremiah 30. Behold, the whirlwind of the Lord goes forth with fury. It's not a category one storm, but something far more significant. The whirlwind of the Lord goes forth with fury, a continuing whirlwind. It will fall violently on the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not return until he has done it and until he has performed the intents of his heart. In the latter days, you will consider it. That's fascinating. Jeremiah, it's almost like there's this parenthetical aside. It talks about the wrath of God against sin. The whole reason we need Jesus to begin with, because all we are like sinners, we've all gone astray in our own way. And yet, while we are sinners... Why are we sinners? Christ died for us. We have a desperate need. We are sinners, and that is a desperate problem because the wages of sin is death. And if we do not have Christ, if we do not believe the gospel, if our foundation is sand, the storm will come. It will knock us over. It will do far worse. It will condemn us. Behold, the whirlwind of the Lord goes forth with fury. In the latter days, you will consider it. A day will come when the storm will befall mankind. A day has never been closer. The storm has never been closer on the horizon than it is now. In latter days, you will consider it. You know, as destructive, as destructive as Hurricane Katrina was, and to hear the tales, it was destructive. See the pictures, it was destructive. For many of you who experienced it or lost all you have, it was destructive. But as destructive as it was, God also purposed it to be instructive, to be a tool to teach us. You know, those on the Gulf Coast in our present day with eyes to see and ears to hear know that Hurricane Katrina was a type, a shadow of something greater than itself was a type, a shadow, a sign of a storm that's still out there. Hurricane Katrina anticipated a spiritual storm for all its ferocity. And as difficult, as strong as the winds were and the fury that was within it, it was a sign of a worse storm. And that storm is still on the horizon. And we need, we need pastors, we need elders, we need deacons, we need the laity. We need all of us as ambassadors of Christ to be the equivalent of spiritual weathermen and sensing that storm's approach, warning people, perhaps looking in the mirror, warning ourselves of what will happen if our house isn't founded on the rock of Jesus Christ as he's offered in the gospel. In whirlwind and storm is his way, scripture says, and in the latter days you will consider it, Jeremiah warned us. My exhortation to you, my exhortation for all of us this morning is that we consider it today. That we consider it, that we remind ourselves of it, that we look at what God has done in times past, that we look at what Katrina did 15 years ago, that we remember what occurred 
that we remember that storm, and that we prepare ourselves, brace ourselves, spiritually speaking, for the storm on the horizon. Let's pray. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 11 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.